Oh Lord, you do not forsake your people for your name's sake. You do not abandon them. You do not forget about them, though they often forget about you. You do not leave them. You will never stop loving them for your name's sake. Lord, this is a passage about you. This tells us about you. And then how we are to respond to you. I pray that you would help us this morning, your people, Riverside. That, Father, we would be amazed by your committed love to us. And that, Father, through your accomplishment of love at the cross with your Son, we would seek to be faithful in all that you have given us to do in response. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You might think that winning an epic battle through your freshly anointed and divinely strengthened king would lead to a prolonged season of rejoicing, kicked off by some message of blessing and praise by the prophet of the Lord himself. After all, Israel had just put a whoop on Nahash the Ammonite and his eye-gouging army, booting them right out of Gilead and rendering them impotent to mount any sort of counterattack. And the people did rejoice. In fact, the last words of chapter 11 tell us that they rejoiced greatly. But the duration of their jubilation was short-lived because the Lord's prophet had some very strong words to say. Chapter 12 is not the last we will see of Samuel. We're going to see him again. But this is his exit off of the main scene as the transition from the days of the judges to the days of the kings now comes to completion. This is a big chapter. It's a bridge chapter. The little boy who was given to Hannah after she so faithfully prayed and who was presented to Eli the priest that he might grow up before the Lord, becoming his servant throughout all of his life, was now an old man. And his prime days for effective ministry were essentially over. But before he faded away, he had one more powerful sermon to deliver to the people. A sermon that would crisply restate the covenant between the Lord and Israel, that would potentially rebuke them for breaking that covenant both in their hearts and through their actions, and which would urge them to follow the Lord anew in the faithful delight that God Himself intended for them. And as we look at this sermon today here in chapter 12, I want us to approach it just a little bit differently than normal, as I want us to view it from three different angles. The angle of the Lord, the angle of the people, and the angle of the preacher. So from one vantage point this morning, I want us to see who the Lord is in this text. And from another, I want us to see who the people are in these verses. And then from yet another, I want us to see God's preacher, the man whom he had set apart to proclaim his holy will. So let's consider this first angle, that of the Lord. Now I want us to see this from the Lord's angle first, because the Lord is central in this chapter as well as in the whole book of 1 Samuel and in all of Israel's history in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in all of life today, but he is central in this chapter. And as we scan these verses, we're going to consider the Lord's past performance, the Lord's rightful due, and the Lord's great pleasure. So first of all, as we see this angle, that of the Lord, let's observe his past performance. 
After receiving the people's witness that he had been a faithful judge over them throughout his ministry in verses 1 through 6, Samuel radically shifts gears in verse 7 and begins to preach with a prosecutorial zeal as he succinctly outlines the righteous deeds of the Lord along with his covenant faithfulness towards Israel while bringing to light the terrible waywardness of the people. Let's begin there this morning. Let's read verses 7 through 11 again. Now therefore, verse 7, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob, which was the name that signified all of Israel, when Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, Then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. Because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. His past actions, that's what he's speaking of. The message of these verses is that throughout their history, the glorious Lord had shown himself to be their delivering God. All throughout their history, again and again, God has shown himself to be Israel's delivering God. And the singular greatest example of this deliverance in the Old Testament, related here by Samuel in verse 8, is when Israel cried out to him while in bondage in Egypt, prompting the Lord to deliver them through Moses and Aaron with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They were saved out of slavery, and they were brought into the land of promise, where they would be God's precious people in God's precious place. Well then, Samuel briefly recounts in verses 9 through 11, God's merciful deliverance which came time and time again throughout the days of Israel's judges. If you recall from a few years ago when we studied through the book of Judges, in those days, Israel lived in a sick cycle of sin. They would forget the Lord, and the Lord would rightfully sell them into the hands of strong men like Sisera, and into the hands of the dreaded Philistines, and into the hands of the Moabites. And this, of course, prompted them to cry out once again to the one true God confessing their sins and their covenant unfaithfulness before him, which wonderfully provoked his compassion as it prompted him to deliver them anew through the hands of such men as Jerubal, which is another name for Gideon, and men like Barak and Jephthah, and in most recent years, through the hands of Samuel himself. These were all servants of the Lord who were empowered to deliver his desperate people after they cried out to him in repentance. So, as Samuel outlines, God's past performance had been one of kindness, one of graciousness, one of patience and compassion and mercy towards his people time and time again. You see, friends, his, his past actions reveal his true character, a character that is also seen in the present and will always be seen in the future. The Lord himself is the delivering God, and that is a truth that is indescribably wonderful because it is the same delivering God who has also delivered us through his Son, Jesus Christ. We see his character here, and that's a character that's perfectly exemplified in what he accomplished through his son Jesus Christ, who came 
as a man who died like a sinner to pay for your sins and my sins so that we might be his people as he rises from the dead and secures for us eternal life with God. He is the delivering God. He showed it through these past actions. And friends, he has shown it through past actions for us. Secondly, not only his past actions, but let us also consider his rightful due. In verses 14 and 15, the covenant between the Lord and Israel is restated by the prophet, using the same if-then conditional language that's found in the law of Moses. Look at those, look at those verses. Verse 14, he says, if, if you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if if you, both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now what I want us to see here are the three postures in verse 14 that God deserves from his people as they follow him. First, that they fear him, it says. Second, that they serve him. And third, that they obey him. First of all, for it to be well with Israel, for it to go well with them, for them to enjoy the blessings that God intended for them, they must fear him. Now, fear in the Bible doesn't always mean and is not always synonymous with dread or terror. After all, Samuel was going to tell them in verse 20 to not be afraid in that moment of the Lord's judgment. And yet, they were commanded here to fear Him, which is something more akin to reverence and honor, even a sense of awe. They were to respect the Lord above everyone and everything else while always considering Him only with complete wonder and deference and esteem as the most high and perfect being. But something more was to accompany this reverence and this awe. For their fear of God was to be a fear that was marked by love. Throughout the law of Moses, Israel was again and again told not only to fear the Lord, but to accompany that fear with a genuine affection for Him. That their awe was to be marked by a true and joyful love. For instance, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says in verse 12 of chapter 10, And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So in other words, as their jaws dropped over God daily, an amazement over God frequently, while they bowed down to Him in their hearts always, they were also to be filled with the happy, loving adoration of Him. Seeing Him in His splendorous goodness, they were not just to say, wow, they were to say, my God, my wonderful Lord. They were to love Him. So the delivering God deserves affectionate awe from His people. Second, they must serve Him, Samuel says. This word serve in verse 14 did not only apply to temple service where sacrifices were made, but it was ultimately a service throughout all of one's life. This word is akin to worship. And so, throughout all of their days, the people of God were to worship the Lord with the daily service of loving Him above all things, completing all of the tasks that He wisely gives, and also loving the people who are made in His wondrous image. It certainly applied to the offering of bulls and goats on the altar, but it also included things like prayer and cherishing His Word and the daily care for neighbors, both the lovable neighbors and the unlovable neighbors. What's more, they were to give this service to him alone. Baal, Baal, whatever you want to call him, was never to receive it. 
nor were there to turn their hearts toward any other idol or anyone else but the Lord. So the delivering God deserves exclusive worship, Samuel reiterates. And third, they must obey him. What he commanded, they were to honor, they were to submit to, they were to perform. The Lord's commandments are only good, my friends. He never gives one that's not good. All are good, and the people were to obey every last one of them, loving Him all, loving Him for all of His, well, his wisdom and His instruction and His direction. Through every obedience, they were to have affection that says, you are good and you are right in commanding this. So, as Samuel 3 states here, the deserving God deserves full submission. He deserves affectionate awe, he deserves exclusive service, and he deserves full submission by his people. Now, all of this is summed up rather nicely in verse 24. Look there with me. He sums it all up and he says, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Do you see the basis there behind their fearing the Lord and serving Him with all their heart? Because consider what great things He has done for you. His great acts of deliverance on their behalf were to be the foundation of their lives of faithful, fearful obedience. And it's just the same today. His great acts of deliverance were to be the foundation of their lives and the foundation of our lives of faithful, fearful obedience. And then third, as we continue to look at this first angle of the Lord from our text, let's recognize His great posture. Now, when we read this whole chapter a short while ago, did you catch... The sweetness of those words found in verse 22. In verse 20, Samuel had told them not to be afraid, even though the people had sinned greatly against God. In verse 21, he told them not to turn aside from the Lord toward empty things of this world, like idols. And in verse 22, he grounds all of this with a solid foundation when he says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. That is sweet gospel music. We know from Psalm 115, verse 3, and other places that God does all that he pleases according to his perfect will. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. God only does what He desires to do. But did you notice what pleased the Lord in verse 22? The Lord was pleased, Samuel tells us, to make a people for Himself. Though He's the God who sees all things, past, present, and future including all of the waywardness of his undeserving people like me, he still desired to make a promise to one man named Abraham and to bless the people who came from that man and to deliver those people from Egypt when they cried out to him in bondage and even to compassionately deliver and restore them whenever they walked away and repented again. It was the triune God's desire to show His loving nature by pouring out His love, not upon worthy people, but upon a people who have proved to be so undeserving. He desired to do that, to pour out His love upon a people whom He knew were rebellious in their hearts. And because it was His great pleasure to make them His people, He committed himself to them in such a way that his commitment could never be broken and they could always rely upon his faithfulness. 
Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Here's the reason. For his great name's sake. He would never turn his back on his precious people because he had put the ultimate skin in the game. His own name, his own fame, his own grandeur, his own glory were now on the line. He had put his name on the line. If he forsook the people whom he had promised to never forsake, then all of the rest of the world could say, he is not faithful, he is not good. But God has so wrapped up his name into his fidelity with his people that he absolutely must not forsake them. And so that not only gives the Lord an opportunity to show his commitment, but it gives all of his people a foundation upon which to rest. I wrote, I wrote in my Bible here, I wrote... A firm truth to remember when all seems hopeless. Oh, the sin that I keep falling into. He's going to turn his back. He's going to walk away. I would. And yet he doesn't because his name is on the line for me and for his people. A pastor named Dale Davis put this really well, I think, when he compared God's commitment to his name, to his own response over something done by his 10-year-old son. And if I try to paraphrase this, I'm just going to miss his wonderful writing, so I'm just going to read it. He writes, For some reason, we have had an unwritten law in our home. Don't flush the stool when someone's in the shower. The rationale behind this law is merciful. Many have had an unexpected, scorching experience. You're enjoying your cleansing experience when suddenly and without warning, another, ma- another family member flushes a toilet stool which somehow monopolizes the cold water in the house and leaves you with only hot water in your shower and vivid threats on your lips. I recall such an occasion several years ago My 10-year-old son suffered temporary amnesia. As soon as he had flushed the stool, he was flushed with remorse, but recovered remarkably well, crowing as he made his exit, you can't beat me up because you're my father. He meant, because of who you are, you are committed to act in a certain way. That is, there were limits on what I would do to him. That is what Samuel is telling Israel in verse 22. Since the Lord has been pleased to make you his own people, he will not forsake you. He does not abandon the commitments he makes. End quote. Oh, my friends, God's name is on the line for his people. That is how far he has committed himself. And his commitment has most clearly been shown through the sacrifice of his son. The only way he could ultimately save the people whom he has so committed himself to with his own name, the only way he could actually save them was to have his son bleed and die for them. The only way that sinners who had rebelled could be saved is for a perfect sacrifice, his only son, to go and take their place on the cross, bearing their sins, dying in their stead as their substitute. It's the only way that his name could be upheld and his people could be saved so that justice and love could kiss at the cross and all would be accomplished that his people might be his forever. This is not a shaky foundation, friends, upon which we stand if we have the gospel in Christ. This is the most rock-solid foundation you could ever stand upon because God's name is on the line and he will not forsake his own name. In light of his saving commitment toward us, let us give him his rightful due. Let us adore him, first of all, with humble love. 
We must understand that amazement over God leads to affection for God. And this amazement over Him is a spiritual work that's accomplished primarily through His Word. God's Word is worked on by the Spirit in our hearts to make us amazed by who God is. That's His intention. And as we become amazed by who God is and what He has done for us in the Gospel, we begin to see Jesus in all of His glory and we believe in Him and we love Him. He does that through the Word, the truth of the Gospel. Therefore, if we are to adore the Lord with humble love, then we must, Christian even, absorb Bible truth into our God-gifted, spongy hearts. He's given us hearts that are no longer stone. They're now fleshy. They're porous. They can receive truth. They can hold truth like a sponge. He's given us that. And so now our objective is to constantly make sure that that heart of ours is so full of wonder and love over God that life becomes the afterthought. Life becomes the result of a heart that's been satisfied by Him. If we are to adore the Lord with humble love, we must absorb Bible truth into the hearts that He has given us. And secondly, let us prioritize Him with a committed worship. I don't just mean singing. We've abused that word. I mean all of life, all of life service to the Lord. Oh, dear friends, all of life service, that word worship, it is a choice. Worship is a choice for the Christian. The more and more I live life, the more and more I watch the lives of other people, I more clearly see and I'm more, con- more clearly convinced that we as a people generally spend our time doing the things that we want to do. Or at least we do the things that we've decided to do. Very few of us are in enslavement to our lives. And if we indeed want to worship God with true commitment because we love Him, then certain choices must be made that reflect this desire. If you've been here, hearing the Word of God proclaimed for some time, and your heart is full of joy over the Lord, and yet your life throughout the week is not really reflecting it, my friends, it's probably because you've not let what God's doing in your heart translate into life transformation. You've not made some important priority shifts in your life. If He is to be our priority, your priority, then it means that other things simply cannot be. It means things may have to shift with work and and with education, and things may have to shift with, with money and free time. Things may have to shift a bit if He's going to be our priority. He's going to be our daily focus of worship. And then with this... Let us honor Him with full obedience. Oh, Christian, I press you to urgently make two decisions in your life. Just two. I think it encapsulates all that we've said. Number one, to lean upon Jesus Christ with all of your heart by saturating your minds with gospel promises. To just bask in Christ to love Him, to to fill yourself up with Him daily. Make that your first ambition, your first duty. And then second, that whatever God's Word commands you, as it's rightly taught and understood, that you will seek to fully obey it, no matter what the cost, as you live out the very brief days that you have on this earth. So that you will lean upon Christ with all your heart, filling your minds with gospel promises. And that number two, you will commit to do whatever God commands you to do in His Word. That's my challenge. I think it's Samuel's. Secondly this morning, the second angle, let's consider the angle of the people. As this passage presents the people of Israel I think it shows us something about their hearts. I think it shows us what God had charged them to do. And I think it provides them with a strong warning. All of which are valuable for us to consider. First of all, let's examine their hearts. To express it clearly right at the beginning, their hearts were prone to forget God and replace God. Look at verse 9, the beginning of it. 
And then also verse 12. Verse 9 he says, But they forgot the Lord their God. And then verse 12, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. They forgot and they replaced. There were two problems with the inner lives of the people of Israel. Number one, they easily forgot the Lord. And this does not mean that they suffered from some ongoing case of amnesia wherein they actually forgot about His existence or even that they necessarily forgot about His past works or even His commands. No, their forgetfulness was more volitional than mental, more choice than absent-mindedness. They forgot God in the sense that they failed to love Him for His goodness and they instead chose to set their minds on alternatives to direct their hearts in other places. And they so much, ad- so much as admit this in verse 10, when they connect their forgetting of God with their forsaking of God. Verse 10, they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we've forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So, number one, they easily forgot the Lord. And number two, they foolishly placed their hope in men. In verse 12, the people of Israel saw the opposition facing them through Nahash and the Ammonites, and this prompted them to demand that they be given a king just like all the other nations around them. But the Lord was their God, the very Lord who had saved them out of Egypt and who had time and time again delivered them from opposition. And rather than placing their hope in their heavenly king who is perfect in goodness, perfect in wisdom, perfect in strength, they placed their hope in the salvation of men, a very poor substitute indeed. Now before we today sit back and rub our chins or scratch our heads at the folly of their foolishness, at the folly of their replacement mindset, let's examine our own hearts. How easily do we forget God. How frequently do we fail to recall His goodness while turning to poor replacements, whether those replacements be the idols that we quietly fashion in our hearts and don't tell people about, or the hope that we wrongly place in fallen people. Shouldn't we see quite a bit of our own selves when we examine this passage? Second, having seen their hearts problematic they were, let's consider their charge. Israel was ultimately charged with two objectives. First, they were to remember God's righteous deeds. And second, they were to follow God in fear and faith. They were to remember and they were to follow. Notice again the foundation for Samuel's entire message that it rested upon the Lord's past actions on behalf of his people. Verse 7, Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed before you and for your fathers. They were to first hear about all the righteous deeds of God that he'd performed on their behalf in order to remind them about the kind of God that they had. And such hearing and such remembering is an exercise that is needed by God's people of all days. Samuel tells them they need to listen, they need to hear, stand, and listen to what he has to say. And so do we. And now notice the response to the Lord's goodness that they were to exhibit. First, they were to respond by fearing Him, serving Him, and obeying Him recognizing both the blessings and the consequences that were on the line for them. Verses 14 and 15. We see if, we see if, twice in verse 14, and then verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So they were to know the blessings that would come, that things would be well with them if they obeyed, and they were to know the consequences that would come if they disobeyed. The Lord. Secondly, they were to recognize their great unfaithfulness in demanding a king to replace God, and they were to now follow him with all of their hearts. Look at verse 20. 
And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. They were to recognize the great unfaithfulness to replace God, and now they were to shift gears and follow him with all their hearts. So the people of Israel were charged with both remembering the Lord and following the Lord. And third, connected to their charge, let's look at their warning. We've already looked at verse 15 that spoke of consequences for their disobedience, that the hand of the Lord would be against them and against their king. But now notice the last verse, verse 25. It says, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. They and their king would be swept away, it says. If you've read the rest of the Old Testament, then you know that this is precisely what happened to the people of Israel. They and their kings, they walked away from God, and God swept them away. Only his people to fruition when King Jesus finally came and fulfilled the promises. But how do we connect to this when we see warnings like that? We also have God's demonstration of goodness to us in the gospel. We're to think about his goodness and remember his goodness. And we are also charged to respond to God with affectionate awe and exclusive worship and faithful submission. Those are the duties of Christians. But what about these warnings? On the one hand, we rest upon passages like Romans 8.1, don't we? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We rest on that, don't we? Speak impatiently with your spouse. Recognize the sin of it. And you think, I'm such a sinner. Why did I speak like that? Oh, i got to go talk to her. i got to talk to God. Oh, but praise God, there's no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus as a believer. Oh, what a foundation. Amen? We have that. We have that. So what do we do with a warning like this? Well, on the one hand... The New Testament gives us wonderful comfort, like Romans 8.1. But on the other hand, the New Testament gives some serious warnings to Christians and to churches if they are unfaithful. But it's a bit different. To Christians who struggle against sin, let me give just one statement. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 6, that the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So when we see a warning passage like that that tells us that there's danger if we're unfaithful, we should be fearful that there's consequences coming. But if we're Christians, quickly running to confess it and repent of it before the Lord, we should look to God not as one who's looking to judge us for disobeying, but as a father who's going to discipline us and correct us. Now, that doesn't mean that the discipline and the correction is fun, but it does mean that the way God responds to our sin at times is to correct us with a fatherly discipline. So there is that. And then I should also say, especially to our entire congregation, the people at Riverside, that the church at Ephesus who had lost their love for Christ, had been given this message by Jesus Christ himself in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Jesus said this to the church at Ephesus. Yes, the same church that you have a book of in your Bible. He says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, Riverside, if we fail to be faithful to God, we should take that statement from Jesus Christ that he will remove the lampstand from its, from its place and put that right on us. We are here exclusively to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ by faithfully following him according to his word. And if we stop doing that, then we should expect removal. So, we too must take warning 
The Heavenly Father who is so gracious in His grace, He will not allow us to besmirch His name. In light of all of this, let verse 24 just sink in. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done. Consider what He's done and serve Him fearfully and faithfully. Finally, this morning, let's consider this third angle, that of the preacher. Samuel is the man preaching this sermon, and let's consider his place in this text. First of all, let's recognize his end goal. Look at verses 1 through 6, beginning of the chapter. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. Samuel's end goal for his life, for his ministry, was to be found faithful by both God and men. He wanted the people to witness that he had been an honorable judge before them. We see the words like ox and donkey, and we think, that's strange. I've never taken anybody's ox either. But he's talking about being a righteous kind of a judge who doesn't abuse his power, abuse his privilege. Has he been the kind of humble man who was wisely leading God's people? That's what he's saying. And ultimately, not only did he want them to testify, but he wanted the Lord to find him faithful when his days of service were over. He wanted to hear words like those declared by Jesus when he said in Matthew 25, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He wanted God to say over him, You have done well, my servant. My people have attested to it. And this should be the ultimate goal of every man of God who sets out to lead God's people in his word, that at the end of the day, the Lord will say, well done, you have been faithful over my people, and look at what I've done through you in them. Secondly, let's consider his message. He preached in this chapter a God-centered, convictional sermon that challenged, charged, warned, and comforted. He directed Israel to God, their covenant with God, and the gracious nature of God to love them and save them and forgive them and restore them. In verse 7, if you recall, he preached the righteous deeds of God. In verse 12, he boldly told them that they'd replaced God for a human king. You've done this, Israel, he said. In verses 14 and 15, he reminded them of both the joys of obedience and the sorrows of disobedience. In verses 20 and 21, he both comforted and challenged them to not be afraid but to avoid worthless things that are in opposition to God. In verse 22, he recalled God's covenant faithfulness, his commitment to never forsake us, and his great pleasure to save them as his people. And in verses 24 and 25, at the very end of his message, he charged them to be faithful from their hearts, warning them of a great fall if they turned away from the Lord. Wow, this was just one sermon. But oh, how faithful was the Lord's prophet. I mean, the checklist is accomplished. He hit it all. 
And this must be the message of every man of God who sets out to lead God's people in his word. To preach the whole counsel, the hard stuff and the great stuff. The, tough, the stuff that challenges people and the stuff that comforts and lifts up people. He's hold the, to hold the gospel high, a gospel that says, if you don't turn and repent and believe in Jesus, there is damnation. The same gospel that says, if you believe and turn to Jesus, there is salvation in him forever. And he is to challenge God's people week in and week out, daily even, to walk the life of faith with him. And then third, as we consider this preacher, let's be humbled by his duty. In verses 17 and 18, Samuel boldly called upon the Lord in prayer that the hearts of his people would be changed. Look there. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain on that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. The words of his sermon that he as a man proclaimed, were simply not enough. He needed the strength from God that came from prayer to actually see people transformed. The thing he prayed for is that though it's wheat harvest, probably May or June, a time when it's really, really rare for rain to come down in the land of Israel, he prays to God and asks God to send them rain. And God sent thunder and rain that day. Samuel's word was backed up by the power of the Lord, and the result was, verse 18, the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And in verse 23, he relates the conviction behind all of his actions. In verse 23, he says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Far be it for the man of God to sin against God by ceasing to pray for his people and by failing to instruct them in the good and right ways of God. Now, I have never once prayed, I'll be honest, that God would send thunder and rain to back up the things that I've preached. But I'll tell you, a whole, a whole lot of prayer goes into it, so that it's not just the Word that goes forth, but it's the power of the Spirit with the Word working as He answers prayer. Far be it for the man of God to sin, yes, fellow pastors in this room, to sin against God by ceasing to pray for his people and by failing to instruct them in the goodness and in the right ways of God. He is committed to backing up his message with prayer. So many guys study so studiously to go into ministry. They, they think they're so powerful in the pulpit. They think they've got their words crafted just right. They know how to cut up a text just right. And yet they've never learned how to walk with God in prayer so that people become the center and that God works through his word to match the needs of people as he prays. What a deficiency there is in the pulpit across this land. This is the duty of every man of God who sets out to lead God's people in his word. To minister to God's people by preaching to God's people boldly while praying for God's people unceasingly. With regard to what we see here about this preacher Samuel, let me provide three exhortations. Number one, Riverside Church family, hear what's just been said. And then heed this. Do not settle for anything less from such men. Do not settle for anything less from such men. 
Do not settle for anything less than for men who minister to God's people by preaching to God's people boldly, by praying for God's people unceasingly. Insist upon it and do whatever you can to make it possible for those men of God, the four pastors you've been given, other pastors who are being raised up, do everything you can to make it easy for them to commit themselves to boldly preaching and prayerfully, ceasingly, unceasingly uh, bringing their petitions for you before the Lord himself. Do not settle for anything less from such men. To do so, you do at your own danger. And then with this, a counterpoint, do not expect anything more from such men. Don't look for the guy or the guys that have the flash. Don't look for the guys that have the flair. Don't look for the guys that have the prowess when it comes to organization. That's all good. That's all nice. Look for the guys who are the godly men who are committed to those two things, preaching boldly and praying unceasingly. If you've got guys like that, your church is going to be healthy. And then third, honor such men well by following the Lord well. You want to know what the greatest delight is from a man who's worth the salt in gospel ministry? The greatest delight is not the financial gift. It's not even the dollars, the income that might come to that man. The greatest gift is his people following the Lord well. Seeing people love Jesus, seeing people share Jesus, seeing people obey Jesus, seeing people humbly admit their weakness before Jesus, seeing people cling to the people of Jesus, seeing people follow Jesus well. That's the dessert. I have one final question to our pastors and to those who aspire to be pastors and for those who may one day be pastors. Will you pursue the same end goal as Samuel by ministering God's message and by fulfilling your blessed duty? Will you make it your aim to one day stand before God having a witness of people who say he was faithful? And God who says, well done. Make that your aim. Not a big church. Not flashy stuff. Make that your aim. So here is the full message of this passage. Israel was unfaithful. God was so very faithful. So let us be faithful. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I thank you for this word. Thank you, Father, for the truth of the Bible, which not only gives us unending comfort in the cross, but also, Father, gives us so much instruction to live God-empowered lives. You do not leave us alone. We are not orphans. You've given us your Spirit, who is more than capable of providing for us what we need to be able to live this kind of faithful life. Help us, we pray. Help Riverside to be a place that shines brightly for the King because we are so amazed by the King, we're so in love by the King, and Lord, we so want to serve our King. And I pray this in King Jesus' name.